Welcome to the LSE Events Podcast by the London School of Economics and Political Science. Get ready to hear from some of the most influential international figures in the social sciences. Hello all, and welcome to today's online event hosted by the International Inequalities Institute. My name is Fabricio Mendes Fialho, and I'm a research officer at the International Inequalities Institute at LSE. I'm incredibly pleased to be chairing today's event titled Civil Society, Solidarity, and Emergent Agency in the Time of COVID-19. Our speakers today are Dr. Paul Apostolidis, Dr. Irene Gilt, Dr. Armin Iskenian, and Anita Peña Savida. And they will be discussing how civil society organizations are responding to the new challenge and examining emerging forms of solidarity and agency. Paul Apostolidis is Associate Professorial Lecturer in the Department of Government at LSE. Irene Gute is Head of Evidence and Strategy Learning at Oxum, Great Britain. Arminish Kenyon is Executive Director of the Atlantic Fellows for Social and Economic Equity Program in the International Inequalities Institute at LSE. Anita Peña Salvedra is an Atlantic Fellow for Social and Economic Equity and Associate Researcher in the Laboratorio de Transformaciones Sociales at the University of Diego Portales in Chile. Please note that we have a live captioner and BSL interpreters at today's event. To activate the captions, please click the CC button at the bottom of your screens. You can also access larger captions by using the link that has been posted in the chat box. If you wish to make use of BSL interpreting, please pin the two interpreters to your screen. To do this, hover over each after videos, click the three dots and select pin. The event will run for around one hour and 30 minutes from 6 p.m. to 7.30 p.m. Our speakers will present for around one hour. And as usual, there will be the chance for our audience to pose questions in the final 30 minutes of the event. Please do so by utilizing the Q&A box at the bottom of your screens, stating your name and affiliation where possible. The next public event to be held at the III is a hybrid event titled The, Di the Digital Disconnect, and it will take place at 5.30 p.m. on Monday, 7th of March. Link to the event along with upcoming events can be found in the chat. Thank you all, and we will start our discussion. Dr. Paul Postolidis. Thank you, Fabrizio. Uh, can you see my uh, slides there? Great. Um, well, good evening, and thank you all for being here tonight. I'm happy to have the chance uh, to report on the very first findings from a research study called Latinx Futures, the civil cultural and political stakes for Southern California Latinx communities. So this project is supported by a three-year Mellon grant and it's housed at the University of California, Riverside. It involves collaborators at several universities in Southern California, as well as the University of Texas, Austin and UNAM in Mexico City. 
I'm also very fortunate to be working with an LSE undergraduate research assistant, Fernanda Alvarez Pinheiro, whose work is funded by our Phelan Center for US Studies. Now, the twin aims of this project are to study and to facilitate community action in the face of multiple intertwined social inequalities faced by the large Latinx population in Southern California. We focus on the Inland Empire, which is a large semi-urban, semi-rural region east of Los Angeles, previously dominated by citrus fruit orchards. Since the 1970s, the Inland Empire, or the IE, has risen to global significance as the largest hub in North America for the logistics industry. I'll begin uh, by discussing the conceptual framework for my research in the IE, which involves critically developing the theory of racial capitalism by examining the experiences of US Latinx working class people. I'll offer some preliminary comments about how capital's racializing dynamics take shape through labor and employment in logistics. And then I'll discuss what our regional partner organizations say about how COVID has affected their attempts to organize community efforts to transform the precarious social, physical, and environmental um, uh, circumstances in which these labor conditions are situated. Our project aims to support these groups' efforts by um, uh, uh, providing a program of popular education workshops on current issues that are prioritized by the partners, which in turn will feed into our analyses of racial capitalism and of prospects for egalitarian change. So I begin with the basic idea that the racial differentiation of working people's experiences is structurally significant for capitalist production, social reproduction, and accumulation. In the Inland Empire, distinctive forms of Latinx precarity in work and community life provide markers of such racial differentiation. Three occupations are central to Latinx employment in the region, warehouse work, farm labor, and work and service jobs for tourism. Each type of work has its own profile of precarity, but I'll just say a few words about warehouse labor because it has been growing so rapidly with such magnitude and world economic impact. So the logistics industry generates precarious work life for Latinos in the IE as an amalgam of insecure employment and bodily debilitating work processes. Workers unload the containers that are brought in through the Long Beach and Los Angeles ports, which are the biggest ports on the North American West Coast and among the largest ports in the world. In the warehouses, the workers then sort, uh, store, and load boxes on lorries for transport um, to retail stores all across the United States. The warehouses operate around the clock, seven days a week, and workers need to be ready uh, at any hour of the day or night uh, to be called in, although then they may wait for hours uh, to be given an actual job. That's because rather than being directly employed by the leading corporations like Amazon and Walmart, whose operations depend on warehousing, most workers get hired through temporary employment agencies. The work itself tends to be dangerous and extraordinarily stressful. This is largely because data analytical systems and devices on workers' bodies continually collect and process information about how fast, how efficiently, and where each worker is moving. The worker is thus physically integrated into a continent-spanning logistical system, which directs the worker's movements uh, as barcode scanning tracks inventories in real time in retail stores. 
And this makes it possible to discipline or dismiss workers who don't meet the performance standards, which puts workers constantly on edge and pushes them to overwork. Occupational illnesses and health problems also proliferate amid the pressures of constant monitoring and the irregular shifting of work activity to meet the demands of just-in-time flexible distribution. Now, the struggles of Latinx civil society organizations in the IE reveal how Latinx precarity, while grounded in labor processes, is also fundamentally a matter of declining social reproductive conditions and political risk and how COVID has exacerbated these circumstances. So we are partnering with, about, partnering with about half a dozen organizations, and here I'll discuss the efforts of three of them. So the Center for Community Action and Environmental Justice is based in the area of Riverside County that has the largest concentration of warehouses. CCAEJ works to raise public awareness, influence policymakers, and mobilize the community to tackle the serious problem of air pollution from the enormous numbers of trucks in the area. More recently, CCAEJ has begun a new Just Transition initiative for equality in the switch to renewable energy sources. The twin goals are first to correct the imbalance whereby solar power and other non-fossil fuel-based technologies so far have only been introduced in the wealthier and whiter areas. And second, to find new employment for Latinx and Black residents who live in the neighborhoods where the dirty energy plants are situated and who depend on these plants for jobs. CCAEJ's leaders say that COVID has made them more aware than ever before of the urgent need for environmental justice activism. The pandemic, you know, gave a huge boost to online shopping, and this has caused record flows of goods through the ports, record truck counts at the warehouses, and expanding numbers of warehouses too. So all this has exacerbated the severity of the air pollution problem and its negative health effects, such as asthma and other respiratory ailments. And this intensifies the need for EJ advocacy. In one way, um, COVID has facilitated EJ advocacy by community members. And that's because the city council and the planning commission have shifted public comment sessions online and they've offered an online attendance office uh, option uh, and this makes it somewhat easier to mobilize residents to pressure public officials. And yet COVID also impedes such action insofar as many constituents are older people who have trouble with technology, but also are reluctant to attend in person because of infection risks. That's what the organization has been telling us. Um, now, another uh, organization that's a partner of ours is called Leadership Council. Leadership Council operates in the rural part of the county known as the Coachella Valley, where farming and tourism predominate. Leadership Council advocates with mostly non-white workers who staff the landscaping, cleaning, and food preparation operations at luxury golf and tennis resorts in destination desert getaways, and with farm workers who pick grapes and other crops. The manicured resorts that you see when you drive through this area contrast shockingly with the numerous mobile home parks inhabited by farm and service workers. And the visual contrast of colors reflects an inequality in water access. Better and more affordable low-income housing is desperately needed, but there can be no development without new infrastructure for clean drinking water and sewer systems. The norm, however, has been to devote the lion's share of these resources to the tourism industry. 
Uh, the problem of Latinx working people being stuck in mobile home residences has complex negative interactions with climate change and COVID. So extreme heat waves have become much more common in this region recently, with temperatures last July reaching 125 degrees Fahrenheit. The last couple of years have also seen devastating windstorms that ripped the roofs off of mobile homes and damaged what little fragile utilities infrastructure exists for them. And yet, fearing the threat of COVID and temporary shelters, many residents still stayed in their homes even as their food went bad in the fridge and power outages made medical equipment non-functional. According to Leadership Council, the emergency conditions created by the pandemic did galvanize a new level of unity among nonprofit organizations to press local government for better public health outreach. The county responded favorably, in particular by engaging promotoras or non-professional health workers from the Latino community, and also by collaborating with the nonprofits to identify uh, the barriers to health information take up. On their own initiative, community members also raised an urgent call for expanded mental health services. Still, um, these encouraging developments, Leadership Council says, have not translated into new action on infrastructure and low-income housing development. And in fact, the recent focus on crisis response seems perhaps to have displaced sustained organizing to deal with those longer-term issues. The struggles over environmental justice, housing, and public health thus show how racialized precarity in the IE reaches into key spheres of working class social reproduction. In turn, efforts by the San Bernardino Community Service Center suggest how political risk factors into Latinx precarity and how the deportation regime helps constitute racial capitalism and how COVID has intensified these dynamics of power and inequality. Legal aid for immigrants who are seeking legal residency or fighting deportation is scarce in the United States. So SBCSC trains people who are not attorneys to provide accredited legal advice and representation. Now COVID interrupted the group's citizenship classes and their Know Your Rights workshops. But this then spurred a reassessment of these endeavors and a new focus on community organizing. Leaders describe their growing conviction that beyond gaining and knowing their rights, community members need to learn how to use them through grassroots community action. Such organizing, they say, is especially needed because the Biden administration has reaffirmed the federal commitment to Title 42. Now, this Trump era rule, ostensibly to control COVID, lets border officials expel undocumented immigrants upon apprehension that is without needing to consider asylum eligibility or other mitigating factors. SBCSC and allied organizations and a regional immigrant justice coalition are trying to mobilize voter registration and popular pressure against Title 42, which has resulted, they say, not only in mass expulsions at the border, but also deportations from the US interior. So for example, recently, the center has been helping an undocumented Guatemalan taco vendor who one day was asked for his ID by Bureau of Land Management officials, um, who then contacted the Border Patrol. This is a classic example, by the way, of the increasingly intermeshed functioning of bureaucratic agencies in the US, many of which have no official jurisdiction over immigration to bolster the deportation regime. The man was deported to Tijuana under Title 42, even though he had an asylum case pending.
So let me conclude by noting three implications for conceptualizing the forms and functions of racial capitalism in the IE that these snapshots of Latinx civil society in the COVID era suggest. And I'll end also with a comment or two about the groups. First, with regard to the operations of the racial state, COVID has intensified the predicament of deportability despite the change in federal administrations. In this way, COVID has further enabled the state's securing of a docile and fearful Latinx workforce at a time when the logistics and tourism industry's rapid expansions urgently require such a labor supply. Second, whereas examining labor and employment practices in warehousing shows how precarity overshadows Latinx working class productive activity, COVID's onset has highlighted and fueled the racial capitalist dynamic of social reproductive debilitation. In particular, the pandemic has entrenched the endemic problems of housing and water access deficits in Latinx working class communities, especially in the context of climate change. By necessitating a focus on crisis response, the pandemic also has impeded long-term work toward equalizing infrastructures for healthy physical life and durable community relations. Third, racial capitalism in the IE subjects working class Latinos to mounting physical health hazards through air pollution as a basic condition of regional industrial growth, even as dangerous work and substandard housing further multiply people's health risks. By supercharging logistics, COVID has magnified this problem and the constraints on climate politics limit the viable solutions. That is, even as Latinx civil society groups promote a just transition to clean energy, cleaner transport systems in the logistics industry, that's still not on the public agenda. Under these combined conditions, then, uh, the groups, uh, our partners' advocacy and community organizing, I would say, have become more crucial than ever. They would say the same thing. <laughs> and despite the stresses of COVID, sometimes precisely because of these exceptional circumstances, um, Latinx civil society organizations in the IE are fostering emergent agency and solidarity in the region. They're pulling together in newly unified alliances to pressure and partner with local government on public health. They're reimagining and extending traditional environmental justice advocacy to tackle decarbonization. And finally, they are facilitating grassroots democratic action and unauthorized acts of citizenship among people terrorized and politically marginalized by the deportation regime in America. Thanks, look forward to your questions. Thank you, Paul, for your insightful presentation. Our next speaker is Irene Gugit. Hello, wonderful to be with you and fascinating to already hear your talk, Paul. And I think uh, what we observed in the research I will be sharing dovetails quite nicely. So in April, 2020, my colleague and I, Duncan Green, who runs the From Poverty to Power blog on behalf of Oxfam and LSE, we started noticing an extraordinary number of incredible citizen responses to the exceptional circumstances of COVID. And we thought it would be important rather than, you know, just 
noting them out of interest to really try and track them and, and capture them and understand what kinds of patterns exist amongst the diversity of examples. So funded by LSE um, and the Atlantic Institute for Social and Economic Inequalities, uh, we set out with a rather unorthodox uh, research process to simply note, collect, discuss, and re recollect and rediscuss and try and distill these patterns. We were helped by uh, volunteers who, who convened 10 thematic clusters ranging from social movements, women's rights organizations, peace building efforts, HIV groups, etc. And what we found uh, were a number of patterns in the purposes and in terms of the innovations that we saw among several hundred uh, examples. So I wanna focus on that. Um, these, uh, just to remember the context in April, 2020, suddenly we were faced with situations where face-to-face -face contact was not possible or, or much more difficult. Travel restrictions were in place um, and a lot of inadequacies of the state really started to emerge because basic needs were not being met. And so in that context, a lot of ways of working and kind of assumed approaches had to be rethought. So first, what were the patterns we found around purposes? There were six purposes that really emerged from the many examples we looked at. The first was obviously meeting practical needs. Uh, there, was a, there were a lot of mutual aid efforts uh, to provide food, to provide um, um, health, um, health materials, let's say, to provide the protective equipment that was needed. Um, I particularly remember that uh, a case from the HIV uh, discussions where um, HIV AIDS medication, which was normally always mediated through uh, pharmacies, suddenly there was no contact anymore and they had to find different ways of getting access to the antiretroviral drugs much more localized. So these types of changes started to emerge in order to meet practical needs. The second purpose for which some of these uh, efforts emerged was related to safety and emotional support. Um, it's no uh, secret, of course, that domestic violence uh, increased uh, in many, many different contexts. And so there was a real need to provide safety in different ways through helplines, through local galvanizing and challenging uh, people's norms. Um, and also the emotional support was a different kind of need that emerged very strongly amongst people who were exhausted by the different uh, context, people who were exhausted by having to step up to meet these different needs. So this was a second purpose around which a lot of um, um, community efforts, group efforts started to uh, show. The third purpose around which groups started to mobilize was tackling misinformation. Misinformation about how the virus was uh, transmitted, who was liable to get sick, um, how to combat it. There were a lot of myths around 
Um, Oxfam itself for, um, noticed that some of these myths existed in some of the uh, refugee camps and um, internally displaced people's camps where we were active. And it was important uh, to try and counter that. Um, so we saw groups starting to um, go out literally door to door to say, this is what the reality is. Uh, there were groups that you know started to uh, very creatively with songs and theater and on radio shows to um, offer uh, culturally you know expressions to help people to, to help combat combat the myths that were around. So that was a third purpose, tackling misinformation. The fourth purpose was around supporting digital access. As a result of the kind of truncated face-to-face um, ways of working, uh, digital ways of getting access to money, getting access to information, getting access to even food supplies became incredibly important. But of course, many people didn't have that access. So they were acting as mediators, they were setting up new apps, for example. There were a lot of efforts at community level to deal with digital forms, uh, the forms that were necessary. Are you hearing um, a lot of noise in the background? Because I'm hearing it here, or is it okay? All right, I think it's stopped now. I apologize, I have some kids in the background. The fifth purpose around which we saw uh, quite a lot of activism and effort was capacity building. So there were completely new ways of strategizing there were, that were needed, new ways of mobilizing, new ways of figuring out how to get food to people, um, new ways of uh, kind of the actual information around misinformation. There were a lot of efforts around capacity building that were also being met by local organizations and new groups that suddenly came into being. And then last but not least was protest and advocacy. That of course made the headlines. And in fact, Paul uh, referred to a number of these efforts. There were four kinds of protest and advocacy that we found amongst the many, many examples that we looked at. The first was defending rights, rights to food, rights to health, uh, to medicine, rights to uh, the ability to protest uh, when civil society was being shut down by governments under lockdown uh, regulations. So that was the first type of protest and advocacy. The second one was about holding the state to account. So if the state was saying, yes, we will provide this, yes, there will be uh, uh, personal protective equipment, yes, uh, we will be there for you in you know, various ways, the civil society groups and, and, and activist groups also were there to hold the state to account and to say, well, where is it? Where are you? This is what you promised. It's not happening. Um, for example, the People's Vaccine, which is a global coalition, is an amazing example of this holding many states to account, holding the world, in fact, to account to the right to vaccination that every citizen should have. The third form of protest and advocacy that we saw were structural responses. And I think that Paul's examples really spoke to that as well. These enormous gaps in the, that the state uh, was unable to fill really started to stand out in a time of COVID. And protests and advocacy emerged around 
for example, in, in Kenya, uh, the responses to widows, um, uh, the rights of widows to be able to move safely in society, um, but also structural responses around access to income and um, social protection, the absence of social protection for families whose incomes, livelihoods suddenly dropped away. And then the fourth uh, form of protest, a uh, purpose for which protest and advocacy emerged was around normative advocacy. So that is, uh, for example, we saw groups that's, that um, started to protest um, and hold neighborhoods to account around the growth of gender-based violence. And um, there are very wonderful examples of almost overnight mushroom, mushrooming of efforts where uh, posters were put against on doors in apartment blocks in a, a certain neighborhood in China to say, you know, it's not okay to be violent. And if you have a problem, please reach out. You know, those kinds of protests and advocacy uh, forms were also there. So six different purposes we saw. We saw enormous entrepreneurial creativity um, we saw a lot of digital organizing and hybrid forms of digital organizing with face-to-face, -face, kind of you know, safe face-to-face, -face, and enormous uh, numbers of collective nonviolent responses to the needs of you know, hundreds of millions of people. So we were challenged early on of whether this was emergent agency or not. Um, is it not in fact the case that natural disasters always trigger enormous amounts of uh, local action? And we recognize that this notion of emergent agency might just be because we, in uh, where we were seated, were suddenly seeing efforts that were visible elsewhere, uh, a Western-centric you know, um, challenge to this notion of emergent agency. But we did see two forms of emergent agency. One was entirely new responses where they didn't exist before, where new needs had, had emerged, where there was really inadequate response by the state and government, and somebody had to step in to fill that gap. That was what we would call kind of the more novel forms of emergent agency. But there were also efforts around um, that, that existing groups or existing um, structures, um, um, activists who had already been working on, on, on something, pivoted and shifted in purpose and in form. For example, we saw quite a lot of organizations and groups that had been were, have been very strong on advocacy, social movements, women's rights organizations, kind of pivot and start to focus much more on meeting practical needs on the service delivery that was no longer possible through um, the forms that, that we had before. We also saw a, a shifting of existing organizations and forms to larger scales. So very, very hyper-local efforts that, that, that were picked up and, and taken to scale through new coalitions or because somebody was inspired somewhere else and you know, wanted to, to make the same happen. And so there was this almost like viral, I suppose is a wrong word in this context, but a, an inspiration and a creativity um, that way as well. So I wanted to finish off by highlighting um, uh, four, uh, four um, themes, I guess, and four opportunities. So COVID in relation to civil society response really shone the spotlight on 
the importance of valuing hyper-local efforts. These are efforts that are faster and more relevant than a lot of the state or international non-government organizational efforts. The second uh, spotlight was really shown on the notion of trust, a lot shaped by trust. These forms that emerged, this action that emerged, had a legitimacy and were, they were able to persuade communities in ways that um, were really necessary in this new context. The third was that um, the pandemic became a social glue for building new kinds of coalitions. And I think Paul spoke to some of this. We saw very unlikely uh, collaborations happen at scale um, in ways that didn't have before. And then we also saw another um, element that has that again Paul highlighted and that we saw in lots in, in dozens of cases was the deep exhaustion and stress that civil society activism in the context of COVID uh, brought about. And so there are four opportunities for supporting civil society. The first is really valuing and keeping visible and keeping these efforts loud. We were, unsh we were unsure about whether there was any value in raising these hundreds of examples and sharing them with the world, but really, I mean, having seen them all, it, this is where, this is where in, a, in, a, uh, in a context of crisis, so much energy is unleashed and so much is possible. So that's the first thing. Can organizations like Oxfam, funding agencies, really support the keeping and keeping loud of such efforts? The second one is to back creative disruption. We, are, we get very complacent in places like Oxfam, you know, with the ways of working that we're used to. But can we see digital access, for example, as a human right? And what might that mean for our priorities? Can we see emotional support as absolutely fundamental for sustained activism? And what does that mean to what, you know, for what we fund? The third opportunity is to value digital natives and the new leadership around digital activism that is becoming possible, but to look very critically at the unevenness that digital activism brings with it. Not everybody has that kind of access. And then finally, and perhaps most importantly, um, is it possible to consider a new social contract? The pandemic has really shifted power relations between citizens and the state. It has challenged mechanisms favored by the international aid system. And it is asking of me, for example, in my role in Oxfam, to really look beyond the normal actors that we would, we would um, uh, collaborate with and to value more fluid and less formal expressions of agency. So I wanted to leave it here with these observations from several hundred uh, examples across the world that all took place in more vulnerable and uh, low income settings. We have a podcast that's coming in March as well, also funded by, by this work that will take a deep dive look at four of these um, cases in particular and a research report will be coming out. Thank you. 
Thank you, Irene, for your presentation. Uh, our next speaker is Armin Ishkanyan. Thank you, Fabrizio. And thank you, colleagues, for your very interesting presentations. Um, in my presentation, I'm going to bring together some theoretical discussions around the concepts of solidarity and agency, together with empirical work that I've done to examine the potential limits of civil society. So if we look at the world today, it's one of multiple crises. So we have the continuing impact of COVID, the effects of climate change, rising authoritarianism, persistent social and economic inequalities, and now it would seem a new war. While periods of crisis are frequently characterized as critical junctures or moments of rupture that create windows of opportunity for transformations in social, political, and economic life as different ways of doing things become conceivable to policymakers and the public, we must remember that the direction of change is uncertain and, the, and it is also contingent upon a number of factors, including but not limited to the agency and alignment of actors and the strategic choices that they make. At the start of the pandemic two years ago, many people thought that this pandemic would be an opportunity to rethink the current systems and structures and to build back better or build back differently. Two years on, it seems as though the initial optimism has waned. And while it is clear that everyone may be facing the same storm, we're doing so in vastly different boats with some in leaky dinghies and others in super yachts. A recent report by Irena's colleagues at Oxfam demonstrated how in the past two years during the pandemic, the wealth of a tiny group of billionaires has vastly increased while others around the world, the vast majority, are facing greater inequalities. So this is a good time at this two-year mark to pause and reflect on the opportunities for change and also the potential and limits of civil society agency to drive that change. If we think about agency, this is a concept that social scientists have long examined. They've examined the nature and meaning of agency and how it is shaped by social structures, institutions, and relations of power. It's been described as an elusive term, and it's seen as encapsulating many things, including will, purposiveness, intentionality, choice, initiative, freedom, and creativity. And it is seen as involving both the reproduction as well as the transformation of relations of power and inequality. As Sherry Ortner has argued, while people make, while history makes people, it is people in turn who make history. Today, I want to focus on what Emmer Bayer and Mish call projective agency. Projective agency is a form of agency that involves actors imagining and enacting alternative possibilities and futures. Projective agency can also be understood as a form of prefigurative politics in which actors not only imagine alternative futures, another world is possible for instance, but they also put those values and ideas into practice in everyday life and in their relationships. 
In considering the agency of civil society actors to resist and alter systems and structures of power, we always have to also examine the limits of civil society agency and what are the factors that, that, that um, restrict that agency. Gramsci famously viewed civil society as the terrain in which hegemonic ideas and structures could be contested. In this emancipatory iteration of civil society, Howell and Pierce argue that civil society can be seen as an intellectual and associational space in which to reflect openly and critically and to experiment with alternative ways of organizing social, economic, and political life, where people have the freedom to imagine that the world could be different. Today, neoliberalism is a hegemonic governing rationality which queries and devalues common ends and public goods. It endorses a form of individualism which is antithetical to solidarity and the collective meeting of needs. As such, we must consider the potential for solidarity and collective agency in the context of neoliberal governmentality and how that affects understandings and practices. With many concepts, there isn't a single definition of solidarity and it can take many expressions and forms that are shaped by cultural, political, and social understandings and contexts. And I'll draw on my fieldwork in Greece to illustrate this. But I also want to highlight that in today's world, we also witness many forms of what can be called performative solidarity. So here we can think about the hashtags of je suis X, me too, and I'm not here talking about the Me Too movement, but in, in kind of expressing a solidarity that doesn't go beyond that performance um, or that expression in social media spaces. To ground what I'm talking about, I would like to talk about, um, draw on my research and to examine expressions and practices of solidarity. And this draws on work I did with colleagues in Greece of solidarity in the context of austerity and migration. And even before the pandemic, we saw how austerity policies and cuts to public welfare meant that communities across Greece were facing hardships. In this, in this context, alternative forms of social relations emerged to meet well-being and care needs that were structured around mutual aid. And solidarity initiatives in the past decade included electricity reconnections to homes, food distribution networks, and solidarity centers in different neighborhoods that provided meals, secondhand clothing, classes, and lending libraries. These solidarity initiatives were founded on a highly politicized understanding of solidarity, which involved not just service delivery and mutual aid, but also encompassed an array of progressive political anti-systemic actions and protests. Beginning in 2015, these solidarity initiatives expanded to also support migrants that were coming to Greece. And some of the most um, you know, important examples of this were the solidarity accommodation sites that people created for migrants. Two of these sites that we studied were PICPA camp in Lesbos, and the City Plaza Hotel in Athens, both of which have now closed. 
But these solidarity camps, unlike the state-run um, camps, embrace a form of prefigurative politics where they prioritize dignity and res respect of migrants over expediency. As such, they stood in stark contrast to the highly securitized state-run camps in that they were created on the principles of empowerment. And they included the active participation of migrants in the daily operations and decision-making. During this period of time, similar solidarity initiatives to support migrants emerged in France, Germany, Italy, and the Netherlands. These solidarity initiatives were significant, not only in that they were meeting welfare needs in the absence of state support, but they were also concurrently mobilizing for structural changes to the governance of asylum and migration. So in other words, they were exercising a form of projective agency to imagine alternative futures beyond securitized borders and xenophobic and exclusionary policies. While these solidarity initiatives succeeded in delivering support to migrants, their ability to achieve wider structural changes was limited. So it's very easy to say that the lack of systemic change means that these initiatives, solidarity initiatives failed. But I suggest that we take a longer term view to consider how ongoing struggles and forms of collective action are processed. And that even in instances where immediate policy impact is not achieved, processes of sedimentation and the seeding of ideas in one period can lead to the birth in the future of a new generation of um, movements, actors, and ideas. As I conclude, I want to end with a code of, note of caution. Whilst we rightly recognize the potential agency of civil society, we should not forget the role of the state and how the solidarity initiatives can be used by the state to implement cuts or to avoid welfare spending. Shifting responsibility onto individuals and civil society to meet welfare and care needs may certainly be attractive some, to some policymakers. But such an approach does not ensure equality and on the contrary can deepen existing social and economic inequalities. And it is also highly gendered with a disproportionate amount of social reproduction labor falling on the shoulders of women. We've seen in, the re in recent years in the UK, conservative politicians celebrating food banks, which are an expression of social solidarity as quote, rather uplifting examples of compassion. This spin by politicians such as Ray Jacob Rees-Mogg and others completely ignores the fact that while food banks may be expressions of so social solidarity, they're also a stark example of state policy failures that have driven people into poverty and precarity, where even those in work must make stark choices between heating or eating. And of course, the pandemic has made the situation worse. So as we approach the second anniversary of life under the pandemic, it's good to evaluate the lessons learned and to look ahead. I want to consider two points before I end. The first is, I think it's important while we celebrate expressions of civil society agency and the possibilities for change that we also consider the obstacles and consider in what ways civil society is leading to changes and shifts in values and norms and also um, policy changes. And consider from the perspective of projective agency, what new ideas and conceptualizations of alternative futures are emerging.
within civil society. Second, I want to consider the tensions between civil society and the role of the state, the responsibilities of the state on the one hand, and also how civil society organizations balance the tension and the time they spent on meeting immediate needs, which have been very crucial during the pandemic, as Irena pointed out and Paul pointed out, but also advocating for broader structural or systemic changes and how that occurs. So as we face a very difficult and volatile future, it's very difficult to imagine, let alone enact sustainable and equitable alternative futures. But unless we can imagine those futures, I think the future will be very grim. Thank you for your attention and I look forward to the discussion. Hi, I'm interrupting this event to tell you about another awesome LSE podcast that we think you'd enjoy. LSE IQ, ask social scientists and other experts to answer one intelligent question. Like, why do people believe in conspiracy theories? Or, can we afford the super rich? Come check us out. Just search for LSE IQ wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to the event. Thank you, Armin, for your presentation. Uh, our next speaker is Anita Penha Saavedra. Thank you, Fabricio, for the introduction. And also thank you for LSE to doing this event with different voices, but also different practical research. I'm going to present a research result about solidarity network among women and strategies to face inequality in COVID times, particularly in the case of Valparaíso, Chile. Something about the context. As we can see, there is three areas. We have a history, a history of women's solidarity, therefore a memory of resistance. Valparaíso has a strong grassroots organization working on women's rights in the past and present. And it's a region where 11% of the community are below of a poverty line, which means that 11% of the family are living with less than $200 per month and 23% of people has no right of land property, so they live in informal settlements without access to electricity or running water. And more than 50% of houses are running by women, which means they are main caregiving financially, emotionally, and physically. On top of that, women at the community suffered and the violence has limited access to social services and state support. In this context, we set out to describe solidarity practices, analyze them, and understand the relationship with the strategies to deal with the past crises, such as Pinochet dictatorship. With this research, we set out to contribute to strengthening social policy at the local level and strengthening the autonomous action in which grassroots organizations are involved in all over the country. So with thanks to Atlantic Fellow for the support, and also we are very thanks for the 47 women between the age of 20 and 81 years old who were part of this research. Now I'm going to share results. The solidarity practices that women of Valparaíso developed are related to a strengthening network that satisfies human need related to food, health, housing, education, income, collective care, and territorial organization. These actions were mobilized by collaboration, therefore, 
This is a motor axis that we place at the base of the subsystem practices. As Butler would say, this show the power of assembly, where bodies come together with a sense of collaboration and reciprocity. This joint action reflects women agency. They make visible a series of confined activities previously concealed in the private sphere and silent. I refer to reproductive and care labor. During the pandemic, the borders between the public and the private sphere has been blurred. A movement allowed reproductive work to be transferred to the public sphere. With this shift, care labor has become part of political actions. For example, practices to ensure food, such as a soup kitchen or food bank, were also spaces for holding political assemblies, to conduct conversation about sexual and reproductive health, to talk about gender violence. On and for some women, the soup kitchen has been one of the first experience of political organization to trust and relate to other women. So under the precariousness also emerged collective care. In the following slides, I'm gonna highlight some components of solidarity practices related first to value and principles, second historical dimension, and third about the territory. As you can read in these slides, the definition of shared principle, which will be moral and the ethical dimension of subsystem practices, is related to dignity and solidarity. The interviewers spoke to us about ensuring that people have decent meals, decent houses, and recognizing themselves as a dignified subject. One of the principles of human rights is the protection of human dignity. However, due to neoliberal policies applies since dictatorship by the Chilean state, dignity became limited. Javier says in this quote, the government response as is inadequate, insufficient, and not aligned with the community need. This reflects in what Antonia says. She is in charge of organizing a soup kitchen that provides decent meals using a various of ingredients, even incorporate in expensive products such as meat. In another quote, Lorena talked about how women embrace solidarity as a moral duty. And as a collective agency to face COVID. So solidarity is gendered. As we can interpret it in these testimonies, women have to manage survival to personal commitment without salary or state support. Therefore, women are expert in redistributing community resources. Another component of the practices is the women's social memory. As you can read in this quote, Lorena point out to the youngest feminists the importance of generating action in their local territories. She considered that it is in the territory or, or community where political activity should be fully developed because according to Lorena, it is in all territory where local participation has the attainable impact on the social problem, for instance, in violence against women. This photo is a, historical, is a historical example of a local workshop about gender violence done by, done by an NGO in the 90s. All women organizing learning are shared with their peers and other generation of women 
and correspond to a strategy that we have seen revived since the beginning of the Chilean social uprising in October 2019, and which continued in the context of the pandemic. For example, one of the main achievements in writing the new constitution within the Constitutional Assembly is the gender parity, which gathered the long history of the fight for women political rights in our country. Finally, another component of the practices is the territory, the geographical place where the agency is distributed, or in other words, where the subject appear, are seen, are communicated, are recognized by each other. The territory is also explained as a social, bo social body that is ongoing. As you can read in those testimonies, are the area of territorial confinement and territorial immunity, which, as Sophia says, are related to the place that personal and social body occupies as an extension of itself. Suppose we think there has been a worldwide trend toward forcing confinement in homes. In that case, the idea of territorial confinement is subverting it because it means created another type of confinement based on territory instead of the house. It is another response to the crisis. It is even another paradigm that disputes and stressed the place of individualism promoted by the social policy in the neoliberal context. Territorial confinement has given us time and a space to reflect. It allows us to prefigure a new reality around personal and collective health. With this prefiguration, something has been brought to the light that was previously not recognized by the state. Um, some share some conclusion and thoughts through values, memory and territory and ecology of practices that we will name as symphoiesis is reflected. We use this idea from Donna Haraway since social practices are produced collectively without time limit, they are historical. They are self-defined where the experience and performance of the practices are distributed among the agency of the people who are part of the territory. In addition, they convey to us the broad sense of care, considering the care of the territory of both human and non-human species. In other words, then function as a composite network where life can regenerate. The collective response in crisis has a clear register of territory, gender, and class since women from low-income sector revitalized practices used in the recent past in, the, in their neighborhood. Women generate agencies in their sense of autonomy and capacity, allowing them to develop their strategy to access to social rights from self-defined organized perspective. Finally, in a post-COVID world, these social practices create a community agency where freedom is a collective doing with a deep sense of solidarity and resistance. Against the precarity of life and dispossession, this agency sets solidarity economy alternative, such as community garden, the food bank, logistic for food or medicine distribution, or the collective construction of housing. Therefore, this agency is a form of communitarian care building from the global south to the world. Thank you.
thank you, Anita, for your presentation. And thank you all so much for your insightful presentations. I will now open the floor to questions from the audience. Please use the Q&A function to pose your questions, uh, stating your name and affiliation where possible. Uh, we have uh, questions uh, in the Q&A box. Um, first question was uh, by uh, Karina Quintanilla. Uh, it came during a Paul's uh, presentation, so I believe this question was directed to Paul. Uh, how can the Inland Empire get funding for extreme heat? How can we ensure that the impact is in the historically excluded population? and the unsheltered. Are there studies communities leaders can present to guide policy and funding requests? Yeah, thanks for the question. Um, I, I must say, I, do, I don't know the answer to that, to that question, um, but one of the things that we're trying to do through our research project um, is uh, to find out what the community thinks uh, would be the best ways that they could organize to exert pressure on local officials and state officials too to pay attention to these kinds of problems. This is the role of popular education in the project, uh, where we are not the only analysts here. Uh, we're 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 analyzing. The goal is to analyze these problems in partnership with people in the local communities. And I think this really resonates, actually, Armenia, with something that you were saying about your research in Greece because there's a very similar ethos to popular education um, as it's been practiced um, and theorized in Latinx communities in the United States and in many parts of Latin America uh, as well, uh, going back to um, Paulo Freire's early studies in, in Brazil. But I mean, you know, the, just the basic idea of, of uh, people from impoverished communities and um, oppressed working class communities participating not only as recipients of services, but as you know, active and equal uh, collaborators in designing the public agenda and figuring out how to mobilize others in, in their community for um, you know for a different kind of, of future. I think it also resonates with the idea of prefiguration in political action uh, as well, because the popular education session itself is supposed to you know provide an experience of the group's power and the individual's power too. Um, to analyze, you know, and, and to change things politically. So that applies, you know, I, to take it back to the question, I mean, that's, that's one of the things that, that is on the agenda for popular education sessions in the Eastern Coachella Valley is to, 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 for, to catalyze people talking about these um, uh, dilapidated housing conditions in the, in the mobile homes, especially with the conditions of, of climate change and heat. Uh, thank you, Paul, for your uh, answer. Um, just to amend, uh, Karina identified herself as a council member in Palm Desert. Um, next question we have from uh, Sarah Simon. Uh, Sarah, uh, the, the record will be available in about one week. And uh, Sarah also has a question for uh, Armin based on or comment based on Armin's question in closing, did the speakers see concrete examples 
of CS making policy change in the recent research. Uh, and uh, we have a question from uh, Damon Taylor, senior advisor to the Mexican grassroots and geopsychologia and derechos humanos. Uh, a question and a, uh, a comment and a question for Irene. Uh, the comment is, we have seen the same six themes in our own work. Thanks for the language. And the question is, how do or how can investors and funders put uh, teeth to the point about pursuing a new social contract, for example, democratizing equitable distribution of resources, loosely defined, to civil society, empowering and supporting fluid, less formal forms of agency practiced by citizens solving their own problems. Yes, can I go ahead, Fabricio? Yes, sure. Great, thank you. Damon, wonderful question. And it's one that I live in my organization. So it's quite painful, actually. I'm trying to push Oxfam uh, Great Britain to be more agile and to let go of some of its very elaborate, let's say, bureaucratic processes. So one of the ways in which we are experimenting now is uh, to, well, I suppose several ways. One is to set up small grants funds that have, where decisions about who gets the money is not made by us. We just kind of create these small grants funds and we put people in charge of decision-making about them that come from civil society. So that's a small experiment that we've got going and we're trying to see whether it's possible to do more of that for us to let go of control. It's very uneasy for us because we also face legislation in the UK that requires a lot of due diligence that, to ensure we're not funding terrorist organizations or not engaging in political activity and all those constraints. But that is one way in which we are experimenting. Another way in which we're experimenting is by um, providing, again, you know, our currency is literally money, you know, <laughs> so by providing funding for women's rights organizations to look at their own uh, needs and responses to deal with the mental health issues that have been that that are part of civil society. So how do so that they can do their own research and create their own advice and guidelines that we can then also adopt. So I guess that's more you know, handing over, you know, power and control to uh, civil society to do research on issues that haven't been looked at enough. Um, a third form, I'm just trying, sorry, I'm just recovering from COVID. So I literally have COVID brain. I had a third thing that I know we're doing, um, which I am desperately trying to remember, but I'll have to come back to that when my brain kind of kicks in again. Sorry for my little glitch here. I did want to comment, follow up on a request for examples by Sarah Simon on um, examples of civil society making policy change, if that's okay. We focused a little bit less on that. We focused more on practices, a bit like what Anita was focusing on and what are people doing differently and how are they experiencing that? 
we did find some um, concerted, like the Delhi Relief Collective in India is a loose association of local NGOs and individual volunteers. And they used social media and instant messaging platforms to collate and then communicate information about relief work and to generate a database um, you know, to help the targeting of um, policy responses. But they also then listed the policy responses and information that was available on, you know, that had emerged on the growing food and migrant uh, crisis. So they used that knowledge to build a very rights-based discourse around the consequences of the lockdown for informal and migrant uh, workers to focus political attention on that and advocate for uh, policy measures. So we have small examples like that where there were people who were bridging needs with policy responses that seem to be hanging in the air because there were generic policy responses, handing out of food and you know, um, hand, you know, creating uh, new hotlines for gender-based violence. There were some policy responses, but it didn't always map onto where the need was. So, you know, it's not perhaps an exact you know, causal link to policy change, but it's a matching of policy responses with, with uh, uh, local needs. So it's a different way of understanding that. Fabrice, I've got uh, two, two quick things. Um, um, to add on to, to um, what Irena said, uh, you know, one, one concrete example of policy change that's being sought in the IE right now is a, a religious um, coalition, a coalition of faith organizations, is putting the focus on youth voter mobilization, in, specifically in order to, to spur immigration policy change in response to the situations that I was describing in my uh, talk, where the situation is that a lot of the parents are undocumented, can't vote, um, and so the effort is to get young people who actually do have U.S. citizenship and can vote um, to uh, turn out and vote in much higher in much higher numbers. Um, the other thing that I wanted to add, just Damon, if you're looking for ways that this organization could um, direct its resources, popular education uh, exercises are terrific ways to do that. I mean, quite concretely, when we asked organizations what incentives could we provide young people not just to participate in the in the in the uh, popular education sessions, but to learn popular education leadership skills, become the popular educators of the future. Um, they said we need to pay them more than the wages that they would earn in Amazon's warehouses. So that's um, so that's that's just key because they need to support their families um, with their wages, and so uh, to 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 nurture these efforts in civil society. It takes it takes money like that. Armin, please. Thank you, Fabrizio. If I can comment just on Damon's um, point, building on from Paul was saying, I mean, the question of what investors and funders can do, I think, is an important one. But oftentimes, the funding will go to formal or professionalized organizations, and yet you know, the groups, perhaps not Paul's group, you know, the groups that Paul was talking about, but I know from Irena's research that a lot of the groups were so informal, right? They're very grassroots groups. So are donors structured and set up to fund those kinds of initiatives and groups? Because, you know, there are these 
kind of expectations of accountability and reporting and so on and so forth, which are important. I'm not saying they're not important, but some of those grassroots groups aren't set up to, to meet those reporting and accountability requirements. So I think perhaps, you know, we not only need to think about a new social contract, but new funding models and, and systems of support for civil society. Uh, thank you, Armin. Uh, Irene? Yeah, I couldn't agree more with Armenia. And I think what it asks of organizations like, like Oxfam, but donors in general, is, is this notion of trust. You know, it was definitely a big theme in our research that we, we saw where there were you know, important, effective responses, trust was present. A different kind of trust that isn't a bureaucratic you know, process, a transactional process. And so what it requires of, of funding agencies is to say, okay, I'm going to hand this money to you, or I'm going to hand this way of work, you know, this support or this, this, this opportunity to you, and I'm going to let go of controlling exactly the journey and exactly how it's going to, when it's going to materialize, and exactly, you know, all these deliverables that would normally be part of the conversation. And we've done that, you know, as part of this, in fact, as part of this, um, this grant from LSE, we put, you know, 40% of our grant from LSE for this piece of work on emergent agency was just put out to countries and say, do your thing, you know, go out and document in whatever way you want, you know, share it in whatever way you want. Um, and it required us to be less, just less controlling, you know, you're literally shifting power. Um, and I had, I have to fight for that in my own organization. Uh, but it's a battle we have to start to, to do. Another, the other example that I remembered before I juddered to a halt before was, and again, it's a form of a loosened. We want to invest more in local organizing. It's not something that gets funded enough, we believe. It happens on the margins, it's assumed to happen, but it costs time and effort and money and you know, capacity. And so we've, we're experimenting again with a small fund to say, well, how can we just make um, money available so that people can figure out themselves how they wanna use it to strengthen their ability to influence better um, without all the constraints that we normally would put in place. So I think that that really investing in influencing capacity without expecting it to deliver immediate policy change or immediate, you know, so many people are now eating better, I think is also seeding the future of the next generation uh, of civil society um, agency. Thank you, Irene. Let's, let me check the Q&A box uh, once again. Um, yeah, I think uh, we uh, answered to Karina Quintanilla's question. Thank you, Paul. Uh, Anita, uh, would you like to uh, add a comment? Thank you, go ahead. Only to, to share some experience in terms of the connection between civil society and the state, but at the local level. For example, through our research, we find different organizations code to address violence against women, but in more communitarian based, not only state, 
now with community organizing, women organizing, men organizing, and etc. So now we are working in a policy based at the local level to target violence against women. Would be the first time that in this municipality in Valparaiso are creating an, a policy to address violence against women. So I think it's important also how research can build bridges between community and, and politics and the policy making process also. I think Chile is a very good example also the whole civil society can achieve main goals that now, for example, the new constitution are part of the social movement. It's not only by the state and the stakeholder who has an agreement to make the new constitution. What's from people, I think, was a bottom-up strategy. So we need to be very focused in what is going on in my country now. Thank you, Anita. We have uh, one question from Sergio Chaparro, uh, LSE. I believe this question uh, goes to all panelists. Uh, how marginalized groups can overcome the classifications to which they have to adhere, induced by policy frameworks in order to access certain benefits? For instance, victims of violence that need to be recognized as such but do not want to be associated with the connotations of being considered passive, passive victims. Who would like to address this question uh, uh, of the panelists? Just unmute yourself. Yeah. I mean, please. Yeah. Um, this is an interesting question, Sergio. I, um, we, we, we had been talking about this earlier, and I think there is that trade-off, right? To, to, to access support, you need to claim a particular identity, um, and that comes with costs. Uh, and I think, you know, th there is this um, trade-off that people kind of um, get into in order to, to do that. Is there a better way of doing this? And I think this leads us into a wider discussion around means-tested and non-means-tested forms of support, because you know this is where we get into um, where people have to prove their need versus universal forms of support. And I remember, you know, two years ago when all of the you know this pandemic started, people were talking about universal basic income and forms of non-mean-tested support. I don't hear that that much anymore, right? It, it seems to have fallen off the radar. But I think this is a really important point because clearly the pandemic showed how much, how precarious so many people's lives are and how important it would be to, to create that level of social safety net, that level of support. And money was found in many countries, right? I mean, it, it, but now as we're almost exiting the the kind of the sharp end it seems we're, we're seeming to going back to what we were before you know at a policy level at least at a social policy level so that's my response i don't think it's much of a response but more of a question but also thinking around you know kind of the wider um, forms of policy that we can adopt Thank you, Armin. Uh, I, I kind of want to do a little bit of. Go ahead, Remy. 
sorry. Um, sorry, I, I thought you wanted me to just unmute, which I did. Um, there's another angle to this question, though, which is actually about social constraints. So the question we notice is that some uh, marginalized groups or individuals have to overcome the classifications to which they have to adhere, induced by social norms, in order to be able to act and to to be. And this relates to, for example, widows in in Kenya. They are. Uh, stigmatized in ways that don't allow them and, and made it very difficult for them to survive and to meet basic needs um, in a time of COVID that led to, you know, you know, a need, the need for more collective action from widows themselves. But there's, you know, not only policy frameworks that um, stigmatize or, or reduce people's ability to access certain benefits. So I think maybe we, we need to break that open a little bit, not only uh, think about works. Yeah, I was just going to say, I think um, it's different from both of the other two comments, but I think I think in the IE, what several of the groups are saying is that because people are classified by the state as undocumented persons uh, in terms of their immigration status, this then uh, prevents, it inhibits people from claiming services to which they're actually entitled um, by by law, just because they're they're afraid, um, and you know there's the sense of of shame that's attached to it, and then and then people are legitimately afraid that people who are public officials in California who may have no direct jurisdiction over anything related to immigration may nonetheless be be being you know pressured or voluntarily cooperating with um, immigration authorities to try to track down, um, detain, and deport. Uh, migrants. So this is, for example, uh, a problem. There's a, an organization called COFEM in, in the region, um, and they are uh, trying to increase uh, families' willingness to engage with public schools uh, and advocate for their children and, and have the children also and youth be more involved in school programs, but families are very reluctant to do that um, when school itself might be a dangerous place for um, people who are undocumented. So, um, so this is another, um, another, uh, another objective, I guess, of popular education, which I was delighted to see what you wrote there, Damon. Thank you for that about your own organization's involvement in, in popular education. Is you know how how would how would it be possible for people to reconceive who they are as actors and participants in society? Thank you. Uh, we have a question uh, from Miriam Hernandez Vasquez. Um, a question for Anita. How do you think that these women organizing during COVID will maintain their agency over territory after the COVID pandemic? What conditions you see to extend the momentum of political formation and organizing? Thank you for the great, the great <laughs> question doing by Miriam. I don't have the, the answer, but from our research, I think we are we saw how women are dealing every every day with this possession, but also is dealing with resistance in our opinion, but also when we talk with women, I think we, we need to see at least four conditions. Women need to need to have access to social rights. 
for example, if for that we are do, uh, writing a new constitution, we need to have to access to health, education, houses, and etc. Also, uh, women at the community and their organization need to have access to, to funding. It's so difficult, as Armine said uh, before, this organization, for example, they don't have a collective bank, bank uh, account. So it's difficult to receive funding from outside the country. Also, it's important uh, that now, for example, with the new government, develop an assistant, a national system of care because with the pandemic, all the care of the community is dealing only and giving only for women. So we need to democratize the, the, the care also. And the state needs to have a very huge role in this uh, kind of social rights. And also, we need to have an, a very um, particular mechanism to participation at the local level because there's so much going on now in Valparaíso at the municipality. Uh, First, if you put Valparaíso in Google, for example, you will see an, a picture of different hills. So people live at hills, and the municipality is in the bottom of the city. So if you need to do something, you need to go down to the hill and go to the municipality. So now the municipality is working in a communitarian model to put office in seven hills. So I think if we keep this kind of model to uh, Put, give more proximity to the municipality, to people, I think will be very important to maintain this kind of organizing and resistance at the territory. Thank you, Anita. Um, we have one comment by Damon Taylor. He uh, thanks the panelists and adds, uh, trust does work both ways. Funders do need to risk more including investing what is needed to operate more fluidly and citizens have rights and responsibilities and obligations to play our role in this negotiation too. And we have a question from Anthony Vallion. Anthony, LSC external alum, a question for Irene and the panel. In the UK, I have heard many people and NGOs saying that they cannot do advocacy if they are a registered charity. In New Zealand, which has a similar charity law background, their charity commission allows advocacy and education as secondary purposes to doing charitable works and providing goods and services. How should NGOs be more outspoken despite some governments discouraging that? Uh, he directs the question to all to Irene specifically and to the other panelists as well. Oh, it's tricky. Um, I think you can do advocacy, but what you're not allowed to do is do advocacy that is party political uh, and is aligned to the specific. You can't be an extension of a of a certain political party. You also cannot do advocacy work that is, um, um, well, particularly in a time of election, actually, um, and you have to be very careful with that. You also cannot do what falls outside your charitable purpose. 
So Oxfam's charitable purple purpose is pretty darn broad. You know, we our charitable purpose is to reduce poverty and suffering and work on the SDGs, the Sustainable Development Goals. Pretty much anything, frankly, falls under that. But as soon as we align ourselves too much with um, one or the other party, we're in strife. So we have to be um, careful that we uh, just don't do that. But we do advocacy work. We have got a court case against the British government to and won it actually to stop the dropping of bomb, the selling of bombs to Saudi Arabia that are then used in Yemen. They didn't adhere to it, so we're setting up another. Uh, uh, court case against the British government. So we do do that kind of advocacy work. Um, so it requires a lot of very careful strategizing. We have a lot of discussions with our lawyers um, to make sure that we stay within uh, the constraints of what we are allowed to do and we don't um, make life difficult for ourselves and, you know, create conditions that are going to be counterproductive. So it is possible. You just have to be very savvy about it. Um, and, um, and that goes for, as a global confederation, it means that if we want to support uh, advocacy work in other countries, that requires, you know, it's, it's, it's our colleagues in those countries that are ones that will determine whether something is going to harm them or not in the long term. And those are very, very tricky cases. In fact, for this very research process, Armine, this research report, we have we have got sign off that has been sent to about 57 countries because we have research from all those countries. We want to make sure that we are not causing problems by naming those countries in specific ways in that research report. Uh, and so there's lots of ways in which you can do it as long as you keep safe and you keep focused on what your main mandate is as uh, as a charity in our case. Thank you, Irene. So um, it's uh, 7.30 p.m. Uh, it's time for us to conclude our conversation here. It's been a pleasure for me to chair today's event. Thank you very much to our speakers for presenting and thank you to everyone in the audience who joined us. If you would like to hear more from the LSE International Inequalities Institute, please follow the links in the chat function to hear about upcoming events and to sign up for the fortnight newsletter to learn more about our work. Until we meet again, virtually or otherwise, thank you and goodbye. Thank you for listening. You can subscribe to the LSE Events Podcast on your favourite podcast app and help other listeners discover us by leaving a review. Visit lse.ac.uk forward slash events to find out what's on next. We hope you join us at another LSE event soon.